0: Well, it's great to see you all here this morning. Um, Given that Tuesday is Israel's Independence Day, I thought I might share with you some thoughts in light of that independence. I don't know how many of you have ever read Israel's Declaration of Independence. Anybody ever read it? It's really pretty interesting. Let me read that for you this morning. Then I want to show you a video that I think, Andrea, you had, had posted on Facebook maybe? And I thought it was really uh, very moving and insightful for me because often when we think of the land of Israel, we remember it in regards to its history and with respect to its ancient past. But this video focuses on what's happening in Israel at the present. But let me share this uh, with you first before we show you this uh, video. May 14th, this was was written, 1948, the land of Israel was the birthplace of the Jewish people. Here their spiritual, religious, and political identity was shaped. Here they first attained to statehood, created cultural values of national and universal significance, and gave to the world the eternal book of books. After being forcibly exiled from their land, the people kept faith with it throughout their dispersion and never ceased to pray and hope for their return to it and for the restoration in it of their political freedom. Impelled by this historic and traditional attachment, Jews strove in every successive generation to reestablish themselves in their ancient homeland. In recent decades, they returned in their masses, pioneers, defiant returnees, and defenders. They made deserts bloom, revived the Hebrew language, built villages and towns, and created a thriving community controlling its own economy and culture, loving peace but knowing how to defend itself, bringing the blessings of progress to all the country's inhabitants, and aspiring towards independent nationhood. In the year 5,657, that's 1897, at the summons of the spiritual father of the Jewish state, Theodore Herzl, the first Zionist congress, convened and proclaimed the right of the Jewish people to national rebirth in its own country. This right was recognized in the Balfour Declaration of the 2nd of November 1917 and reaffirmed in the mandate of the League of Nations, which, in particular, gave international sanction to the historic connection between the Jewish people and Eretz Yisrael, the land of Israel, and to the right of the Jewish people to rebuild its national home. The catastrophe that recently befell the Jewish people The massacre of millions of Jews in Europe was another clear demonstration of the urgency of solving the problem of its homelessness by reestablishing in Eretz Yisrael the Jewish state, which would open the gates of the homeland wide to every Jew and confer upon the Jewish people the status of a fully privileged member of the community of nations. Survivors of the Nazi Holocaust in Europe as well as Jews from other parts of the world, continued to migrate to Eretz Yisrael, undaunted by difficulties, restrictions, and dangers, and never ceased to assert their right to a life of dignity, freedom, and honest toil in their national homeland. In the Second World War, the Jewish community of this country contributed to its full share to the struggle of the freedom and peace-loving nations against the forces of Nazi wickedness and by the blood of its soldiers and its war effort gained the right to be reckoned among the peoples who founded the United Nations. In the 29th of November in 1947, the United Nations General Assembly passed a resolution calling for the establishment of a Jewish state in Eretz Israel. The General Assembly required the inhabitants of Eretz Yisrael to take such steps as were necessary on their part for the implementation of that resolution. This rec- recognition by the United Nations of the right of the Jewish people to establish their state is irrevocable. This right is the national right of the Jewish people to be masters of their own fate, like all other nations, in their own sovereign state. Accordingly, we, members of the People's Council, representatives of the Jewish community of Eretz Yisrael and of the Zionist movement, are here assembled on the day of the termination of the British mandate over Eretz Yisrael, and by virtue of our national and historic right, and on the strength of the resolution of the United Nations General Assembly, hereby declare the establishment of a Jewish state in Eretz Yisrael to be known as the State of Israel. We declare that with effect from the moment of the termination of the mandate being tonight, the eve of the Sabbath, the 6th of E.R., 5,708, May 15, 1948, until the establishment of the elected regular authorities of the state in accordance with the Constitution which shall be adopted by the elected Constituent Assembly not later than the 1st of October 1948, the People's Council shall act as a provisional council of state and its executive organ, the People's Administration, shall be the provisional government of the Jewish state to be called Israel." The state of Israel will be open for Jewish immigration and for the ingathering of the exiles. It will foster the development of the country for the benefit of all its inhabitants. It will be based on freedom, justice, and peace as envisioned by the prophets of Israel. It will ensure complete equality of social and political rights to all its inhabitants, irrespective of religion, "'Race, or sex. "'It will guarantee freedom of religion, "'conscience, language, education, and culture. "'It will safeguard the holy places of all religions, "'and it will be faithful to the principles "'of the Charter of the United Nations. "'The State of Israel is prepared to cooperate "'with the agencies and representatives "'of the United Nations "'in implementing the resolution "'of the General Assembly of the 29th of November, 1947,' and will take steps to bring about the economic union of the whole of Eretz Yisrael. We appeal to the United Nations to assist the Jewish people in the building up of its state and to receive the state of Israel into the community of nations. We appeal in the very midst of the onslaught launched against us now for months to the the Arab inhabitants of the state of Israel to preserve peace, and participate in the upbuilding of the state on the basis of full and equal citizenship and due representation in all its provisional and permanent institutions. We extend our hand to all neighboring states and their peoples in an offer of peace and good neighborliness and to appeal to them to establish bonds of cooperation and mutual help with the sovereign Jewish people settled in its own land. The state of Israel is prepared to do its share in a common effort for the advancement of the entire Middle East. We appeal to the Jewish people throughout the diaspora to rally around the Jews of Eretz Yisrael and the tasks of immigration and a building and to stand by them in the great struggle for the realization of the age-old dream, the redemption of Israel. Placing our trust in the Almighty, We affix our signatures to this proclamation at this session of the Provisional Council of State on the soil of the homeland in the city of Tel Aviv on this Sabbath Eve, the fifth day of E.R., 5,708, May 14, 1948. And the first signature is that of David Ben-Gurion. Of course, Golda Meir is in there and a whole number of others. Is that not an incredible document? I don't think in all the years that I've focused on Israel, reflected on Israel, that I've ever read through its Declaration of Independence. But that is just a marvelous statement of history, of reality, a marvelous statement of desire for peace and justice and cooperation with its neighbors and with the Arab, the Arab inhabitants of the land itself. It's really an incredible, incredibly rich, full, and just wonderful, peace-loving document. And it's on that basis that the state of Israel was formed. And then it concludes with an appeal to the Almighty God for his blessings and for his grace. And we are ones who are able to witness that emergence. Perhaps not all of us were around in 1947. Some of us were, no doubt. But here we are today to witness what has transpired since its formation some 65 years ago. So if we can turn down these lights, and Anna, if you can show us this video, I think this is a very powerful one on what is transpiring uh, in Israel. So let's take a look at this. I can't help, you know, I don't know if I'm just becoming more emotional these days after watching Downton Abbey for, uh, <laughs> but uh, all I can tell you is when I see this guy talk about as a quadriplegian being able to walk, I don't know, the tears, man, they just start welling up. It's amazing how this small country, you saw it on the NASDAQ thing, you know, seven million people, six million people, are, game, are that nation is a game changer. For so many individuals and for so many nations, so we ought to be extremely excited and very proud of who Israel or what Israel is. And again, as I said last year about last week about Yom HaShoah, I say that about Yom HaAtzmautz. Every church ought to be celebrating this. Everyone ought to be aware of how marvelous Israel is contributing to the world today in the 21st century and not just in a historic relic of 2,000 years plus in the past. There's a present Israel that's making a dramatic uh, uh, impact on the world at large. Now, if you have your Bibles, I'd like to just take a few moments to direct our attention to God's Word. And I'd like us to turn to the prophet Amos. One of the minor prophets, sandwiched there between Joel, I think it's Joel, Joel and Obadiah. And if you look at the last chapter, chapter 9, I'd like to read verses 11 through the end for you. In Amos chapter 9, verse 11, Amos writes, In that day I will restore David's fallen tent. I will repair its broken places, restore its ruins, and build it as it used to be, so that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear my name, declares the Lord who will do these things. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills. I will bring back my exiled people, Israel. They will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their water. They will make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant Israel in their own land, never again to be uprooted from the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. Now, Amos is, an, is a marvelous prophet, a prophet from Tekoa. He was a shepherd. If you take a look at chapter 1, he tells us that. The words of Amos, one of the shepherds of Tekoa. He is also the earliest writing prophet. Of all the writing prophets, his is number one. He tells us that he existed or he wrote his document or he was serving as prophet during the time of Uzziah when he was king of Judah, and Jeroboam, the son of Joash, or Yehoash, was king of Israel. Amos is a prophet in the north, in the northern kingdom of Israel. We know the time in which he reigned, not because of the earthquake, we don't know any record of that, but because of the naming of these kings. And Uzziah was king from 780 to 740 BCE, before the common era, before the time of Messiah. During that 40-year uh, period, Jeroboam was reigning on the throne in Israel. Uzziah was, on, was the king of Judah. This Jeroboam is Jeroboam II. The first Jeroboam was the Jeroboam who took over the northern kingdom of Israel after the division of the kingdom, after the reign of Solomon. Jeroboam was the first king of the northern kingdom of Israel. Rehoboam was the king in the southern kingdom of Judah. Now from 780 to 740, we have Jeroboam II. Amos is the prophet during his reign and during that period. It was a very prosperous time in the northern kingdom of Israel. It was a time when their kingdom had secured their borders from their enemies They had expanded their borders into some of the neighboring nations. They had begun to receive some tribute money from those border states. They had also developed their infrastructure in the northern kingdom of Israel. So goods were being moved from north to south, east and west. A A time of prosperity financially, a time of prosperity materially, But unfortunately, it was a time of spiritual decline. It always is a time of spiritual decline in the northern kingdom of Israel because they are not submitting themselves to the king in Judah who is the descendant of David and the rightful heir to David's throne. So they always are in a spiritual decline. It's one of the reasons why all of the nine kings in the north are always referred to as doing that which was wicked in the eyes of the Lord. There's no righteous kings in the north. And also in Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel, they're continually worshiping false gods. They're no longer going to Jerusalem, the southern kingdom of Judah. They're no longer going to the temple and worshiping there. They're worshiping in other sites, and they're falling prey to idolatry. Nevertheless, God is gracious to them, and their their nation has prospered greatly. Amos comes on the scene, and his book is a book about judgment. He's telling the northern kingdom of Israel, God is going to bring judgment on this nation if you do not repent and follow me. Forget about the blessings you are receiving. You need to walk in my ways. So now if you look at Amos chapter 9, beginning at verse 11, he says, in that day, that's a key phrase in Amos' book. It's used four other times before chapter 9. It's found in chapter 2 and it's found in chapter 8 some three times. And one phrase in chapter 8, it says, uh, in those days. And every time Amos uses that phrase, it introduces a coming judgment that will befall the people of Israel, except in chapter 9. This is the exception in which he tells us in verse 11 for... uh, excuse me, I've, I've turned over. In chapter 9, it says, in that day, I will restore David's fallen tent. In all the other previous verses, he's been saying, I'm going to bring judgment. Now he turns the tables and he says that there's coming a day when Israel will be greatly blessed. They will go through a time of great judgment, a time of great hardship, a time of desolation, but ultimately the end game for Israel is one of blessing and one of restoration. Now, listen what Amos tells us about that time of restoration. Number one, he tells us that time of restoration will be characterized by David's dynasty being restored. He's telling, that is, Amos is telling the northern kingdom that your kings are invalid. And one day all of Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, will be reunited under one descendant of David who will be Israel's king. And so the first thing he tells us is that this is a time in which the kingdom will be restored. So what's going on in Israel today is not what Amos is talking about here. Amos is talking about a time yet future to us. But I think what we're seeing in Israel today and in yesteryear, 1948 to the present, are indicators that we are drawing closer and closer to this point in history or this point in the future, which is yet to come. What ought we to anticipate? Number one, the Davidic dynasty will be reestablished. That means the Lord Yeshua is going to reign as king. That's why the angels told the disciples in Jerusalem when Messiah ascended into heaven, into a bright cloud that received him out of their sight, the Shekinah glory that hovered above, Yeshua ascended into the very glory of God. The angels that saw the disciples gazing into the heavens said, this same Yeshua will come in the same manner in which you see him Having departed, he will come visibly. He will come really. He will come actually. He will come historically. He will come in time and space and to this particular place in our world. And when he so comes, the kingdom of David and his dynasty will be reestablished and God's promises to David will come to fruition. That's the first thing. Amos tells us. Take a look at the second. Secondly, he tells us, I will repair its broken places and restore its ruins and build it as it used to be. So Israel's cities are going to be rebuilt. This is yet future to us. But as we look at Israel today, and consider how the cities of Israel have begun to be built up. It is an indicator that we are moving closer and closer toward this time that Amos is speaking about. Israel's cities will be rebuilt. If you've never read Mark Twain's reflections on his trip to Israel, you ought to read them. Because what he writes about is a desolate land. A land filled with dust and sand and dirt is how he described it. A land that was permeated by disease. A land of swamps in the north. A land where its people were staggering under the struggles of trying to make a living in that barren wasteland of a place he speaks about. That was only a little over a hundred years ago. Today, Israel is nothing like that at all. Today, it is a place where its ruins have been rebuilt, where its cities have been reestablished and yet they will be far greater than what we see today. All of the ingenuity, all of the things that are going on scientifically and with regard to the computers and etc. that we, are, we saw in this video will, will be eclipsed by what Israel yet will manifest when Messiah himself returns. The city of Jerusalem will be enormous in comparison to what it is today. The Temple Mount itself will be one mile square. The Temple Mount. Today, it is large enough to fit two and a half of the great pyramids of Giza upon it. It's the largest archaeological site in the world. But one day, it will be one mile square on the top of the tallest mountain in the world when Messiah will reign. And his palace, his throne will be located there. The cities, we're told, will be rebuilt. If you look at verse 12, he says, not only will they rebuild the cities, but then they are going to possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear my name. That is to say, Israel will be the chief of the nations and their king will be acknowledged by all other nations. Take a look at verse 13. The days are coming, Amos says, to reinforce the certainty of what is about to transpire or what will transpire. I love the way Amos writes verse 13. I've reflected on this over and over and over again to get the full grasp of what Amos is trying to say, and I just find it to be amusing, but also insightful. Verse 13, he says, "...the days are coming when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman, and the planter will buy the one treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and will flow from the hills." the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman. In other words, what he's saying is as the plowman plows the ground and the crops grow, the reapers are reaping and then the plowman's coming back around. He's saying, you guys got to work a lot faster because we're already done with the plowing. In other words, they're plowing, the stuff is growing, the reapers are reaping and now the plowman's coming back and saying, you're in my way, I've got to keep going. It's a way of showing overabundance of stuff. God is going to so bless them that the reapers are keeping the plowmen from doing their job because they're not reaping fast enough to get out of their way to replow the land that they had just plowed. He tells us that the grapes, look at verse 13, new wine will drip from the mountains. You know, if you go to Israel, you see a lot of the vines and the grape vines and olive trees. They're all on terraced hills. So here the terraced hills have all these vines and the vines are growing so full and fast that when they burst open, they burst as fermented wine. Like there's no time for the grapes to have to go through a fermenting process when they are just blooming and bursting. They're just pouring forth wine from the mountaintops. That's the imagery that Amos is providing for us to say there's going to be an overabundance of crops, of grapes, and of wine. It's another way of saying not only will God bless Israel materially, but he'll also bless them with great joy because of what they now have. Wine is always a symbol of joy and celebration in the scripture. And I can't help but think of John chapter 2, where at the city of Cana, the village of Cana, Yeshua performs his first of seven major sign miracles that John records. And it's the turning of water into wine. We would think that's not such a great miracle. I mean, if it was him walking on the Sea of Galilee, now that would qualify to be the first of his many signs. But it's not. The first of his signs is the multiplication, the immediate fermentation of water into wine. And what Yeshua does is quite remarkable. Because when you think of the quantity of wine Messiah made, it is enormous. So in Israel, I think it says in, in the account, I don't know the New International, but I know in the King James Version, it says that there were six water pot, pots at the wedding festival that each held, uh, I forget the number of six or something, firkins of water apiece. So you have these, I think it's six water pots that had six now I'm getting the numbers confused. Someone look this up quick. Uh, six firkins are, held so many firkins of water in each one of these pots. Now, the reason they had these water pots is because of the cleansing rituals that the Jewish people observed at festivals and in other, on other occasions. Now, a wedding festival would last at least a week. So you've got the village coming in and out from the area where they're celebrating and they've got the water pots out so everyone can go through the ritual washing as they come in, eat, fellowship, enjoy each other, celebrate, party, and then leave. Then they come back and they've got to wash their hands again. So they put out many pots with a good deal of water in order to provide for the cleansing rituals that the Jewish people would observe. Now, there were different size firkins depending on which rabbinic authorities you uh, were obedient to or responsive to. In Jerusalem, a firkin was equivalent to anywhere between five and eight gallons of water. So if there are six of these water pots that are holding eight firkins apiece, that's how many gallons? Anybody have a calculator? Did anyone figure it out? It's a lot, right? And so it's probably upwards of nearly 100 gallons. 400? Is that what that comes out to? Okay. Oh, we got 48. Now we need a math professor here. Where's Brian when I need him? But in any case, six water pots. If each one contained, uh, what it was six uh, firkins, And if each firkin is anywhere from five to eight gallons, it's a whole lot. In Seppharis, Seppharis was a village that was about seven miles, 10 miles northwest of Nazareth in Galilee. The rabbis there calculated a firkin anywhere between 17 and 25 gallons per per firkin. So now figure what that is. That's over 400 gallons. So that's a lot of wine Messiah made for this festival. Why does he do this? Because weddings are places for joy. And wine is a symbol of joy. And when the Messiah returns, there will be a marriage feast that will occur. And when he returns, there will be joy like there has never been before in the history of the world. And thus he multiplies the wine to anticipate and to symbolize the great great joy that will be experienced when Messiah is seen in his glory. And indeed, that passage says the disciples then saw his glory and they believed on him. The whole purpose of the miracle was to demonstrate the glory of the Messiah which glory will not be seen in its fullness until he returns, as Amos is describing. And thus, the mountains themselves will burst forth with wine. There'll be great material expansion and blessing. And there'll be great joy among the people because of what God has provided for them, like the great joy that was in that household and village at Cana when Messiah multiplied their joy. That was just a foretaste of the great joy that will come to the world when Messiah returns and these blessings are um, brought about in the land of Israel. Take a look at verse 14. If all of this wasn't enough, the reestablishment of the Davidic dynasty, the rebuilding of the cities in the land of Israel, the possession of all the nations now worshiping the king of Israel, the prosperity that will come to the people. In verse 14, he says, I will bring back my exiled people, Israel. They will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards. This is a way of him reemphasizing what he just said so that we make no mistake about its certainty. But look what he says at the end. I will plant Israel in their own land, never again to be uprooted from the land I have given them. The final thing that Amos tells us is that when Israel is regathered and restored, they will never be uprooted from their land ever again. The land that God has given them. Let us make no mistake about it. The land of Israel is given to Israel. The land of Israel is given to the Jewish people. The land of Israel is given to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And here he says, Amos says, the land that I have given to them. Now, some have said this was fulfilled in the past. Some have said, if you read 1 Kings chapter 4, you'll read that Solomon extended the borders of his kingdom to the borders of the land that was promised to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. Genesis 15, Abraham is told by God, that he would be given the land of the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Canaanites, the Zebulites, and a whole number of other nations that are listed. Some have said in 1 Kings chapter 4, it says that Solomon inherited all the land that was promised to him. From the river, that's the river Euphrates, where it's northern, uh, the extent of the river in the north flows through Syria, to the border of Egypt in the south, which is the Wadi El Arish, which is the uh, wadi that borders around the Sinai Peninsula and the southern border of what is today present-day Israel. But in the time of Solomon, Israel did not possess all that land. Indeed, Solomon had those nations paid tribute to him, but they did not possess all that land. In fact, Israel has never possessed all that land. If you consider one nation, the Hittites, The Hittites dwelt in what is today Turkey. So is God saying that the land that is promised to Israel extends further north than Lebanon and Syria into some of the region of Turkey? That was the region of the Hittites. It's possible some scholars believe that. I'm not certain. But nevertheless, Israel has never possessed all of the land that Abraham was promised in Genesis chapter 15. But here in Amos, we're told that they will inherit that land and they will never be uprooted from it ever again. So how close are we to this time when the Lord will do these things? I am impressed by what we are seeing in our own day. 1948, Israel becoming a state. First time since its dispersion and its exile by the Babylonians in 586. BCE, before the Common Era. So in 1948, some 2,500 years elapsed before Israel had become a state again. There were Bible commentators who wrote and wrote convincingly about Israel being regathered into their land, even in the 1800s. And they were oftentimes laughed at because it seemed to be an impossibility that this people dispersed around the entire globe would ever be able to return to their ancient homeland. No other nation has ever done that in the history of the world. And then to revive its own language. That's a whole nother miraculous historical reality that has occurred. But 1948 is an important mark on our calendar. Israel has become a state after so many thousands of years. 1967 is another mark on our calendar when Israel possesses the entire city of Jerusalem, its ancient capital. They did not possess it in its entirety in 1948 through 1967. Only in 1967 did they then conquer or uh, have restored the city of Jerusalem. That also ought to be important for us to consider I think a third thing that we need to consider are the attitude and actions of the surrounding nations of Israel. The fact that every surrounding border state is antagonistic to the state of Israel reminds me of Psalm 83, which speaks of those surrounding nations attacking Israel at some time in the future, each one being antagonistic. Today, we're seeing that. Now, Egypt, though it has on paper a peace treaty, it is a nation led by the Muslim Brotherhood that is antagonistic toward Israel. Israel is their enemy. Just as Lebanon, under Hezbollah's control, just as Syria, which is going through its own civil war, the only border state is Jordan. I suggest you keep your eye on that state. And when the smoke clears in Syria... Will the Muslim Brotherhood raise its hand in Jordan to secure that nation as they have now Egypt and potentially Syria? So I suggest we watch what happens in Jordan because according to Psalm 83, all the border states around Israel will attack her one day. I think that's a thing we need to keep our eyes on. In Ezekiel 38 and 39, you have another set of nations that will attack Israel that are not border states, but outlying states. States like Iran is mentioned. States like Sudan and Ethiopia and other nations to the north by the Caspian and Black Seas. I suggest we watch what's happening in that part of the world as well. With regard to Israel, this is my thinking. I think we ought to watch to see what happens on the Temple Mount. Scriptures are clear, the temple must be rebuilt. Daniel tells us that, Yeshua tells us that, and the book of Revelation tells us that. So what is going on in the Temple Mount and are there plans or designs in order to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem? I just saw an article in which some Muslim leaders are calling for a rebuilding of the temple next door to the Mosque of Omar, the Golden Domed Mosque in Jerusalem. So Israel's become a state. Jerusalem is back in Jewish hands. We're seeing the surrounding nations grow in their antagonism and desire to destroy Israel. We're seeing some movements on the Temple Mount. Certainly there are institutions rebuilding articles that would be used in the Temple. Will the Temple be rebuilt in our day? We ought to keep our eyes on that. And then I think it will not be long into a world ruler will come on the scene of the last Gentile ruler that will oppress Israel. And then the events that are unfolding in the book of Revelation will come to bear. We are much closer to those events than we've ever been before, obviously. And we're seeing things that those before us have never witnessed before in history. And we are seeing it. And I think there will yet be an outpouring of God's grace upon the Jewish people, and perhaps in the very near future, that will occur, perhaps within a number of years. And I think it's interesting for us to be here at Beth Ariel, because I believe God is going to open the door of the hearts of many of our people to the truth of Messiah before some of these other events that I've spoken about will come to fruition. And thus, we must be prepared, like Amos in his day, to proclaim God's truth to our people in our day. We have that opportunity every moment to share the good news with those who do not know him, both Jews and Gentiles alike. And as Dan shared earlier, we need to be ones that are ready to give a word regarding the hope that lies within us to anyone who asks And to do so in a manner in which it is convincing and yet loving. And so on this occasion, when we celebrate the state of Israel, there's so much more at stake than merely what Israel has done and is doing, but what God's intentions are for the not too distant future. So let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for your blessings upon your people Israel, and we thank you for bringing them back into your land that you have given to them in our day and age. Thank you for permitting us to be witnesses of your activity among your ancient people. And so, Father, we would lift up to you once more your people Israel. May your Angels, watch over them. May the believers in the land be given great unction by your spirit to proclaim the good news of the Messiah. May your people in the land have their hearts open to those who love you there. And may they see great fruit from their efforts. And then, Lord, we pray for our part in what you are doing among Jewish people around the world. May we be your witnesses this day and every day to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, testifying of the marvels of the state of Israel, simply because it is a manifestation of your hand upon them and upon their lives. So, Father, we bless you And we are grateful for what you are doing and what you promise yet to do. May you bring your will to complete fulfillment in the near future. For we pray in Messiah's name. Amen.